where we were just recently teaching another retreat in the Northwest. It's in a forest, and there are quite a few deer around there, and often <clears throat> they come really close to the meditation hall or to to us when we're walking on the pathways. And these deer are really pretty extraordinary teachers. They move with such grace and ease that we should learn from them how to move through our own life with grace and ease. These deer have this quality of seemingly effortless attention. They're so attuned to their environment. They see and hear the slightest thing. They walk so delicately not to, you know, um, crackle sticks under their feet. They're very alert. And yet in their alertness, they appear also very tranquil and at ease. When you see them, you don't get a sense that they're spaced out. You don't get a sense that they're caught up in, you know, thinking about the past when they would have been hurt. And you don't get a sense that they're, you know, actively planning tomorrow. They're just in the present moment, just totally alert, all of their senses open and alert to just being there then. So when we see them, when you observe them, they awaken in us that same quality, that same ability to rest in this extraordinarily alive, alert tranquility, groundedness, being in touch with our sensory environment. They live with this unbounded freedom, or they die if they're not attentive. Some would say that tranquil alertness is an oxymoron, mutually exclusive conditions. But in fact, we all have had a taste, even today, of that ability to be extraordinarily alive and alert to what's going on in the midst of or held in the space of an ease and tranquility and groundedness. When the mind is balanced, when the factors of the mind are brought into balance, then this tranquil alertness or this dynamic stillness is no problem. When it happens, we move through our life without a sense of struggle, without a sense of separation, without feeling alienated from our experience, nor aloof from it. 
but rather feeling very present, fully in touch with, and intimately familiar with the details of our life. When the mind falls into this balance, because it does seem to come by itself, then there's this quality of just being present. So what is this presence? What is this quality of alertness in the midst of tranquility? Where does it come from? How can we understand it? In the Buddhist teachings, there's one discourse where he talks about this quality of mind and the development of it in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness. This quality of balanced mind, effortless attention, tranquility and ease, is really mindfulness. When the mind is full in its capacity to know. So we've been working and developing and struggling with our conditions, trying to arouse this mindfulness, trying to discover it, trying to sometimes make it happen, sometimes just hoping to recognize it when it appears. But nevertheless, the quality of mindfulness is in its power to observe what's happening, like those deer, observing everything in their environment. What we observe is what's happening for us in our environment, the movement of the belly as we breathe, the movement of the legs as we walk, the wanderings of the mind as it goes here and there, the nature of our emotional life, we begin to bring into the range of our knowledge these very intimate experiences of our life, feeling our way into each moment. This power of observation brings us into direct touch with our experience intimate, direct touch with our experience. In contrast to much of our life in which we float through a dream. Walking down the main street of our life, we barely see what's going by because we're so lost in our thoughts. And it's only when something becomes really intense really dramatic, that we come out of our dream and we register, oh, this is happening now, here. But mindfulness is this willful, this intentional, coming into that kind of contact out of the dream, not from a place of confrontation or a challenge, but rather with that touch that's familiar in intimacy, a soft, opening, receptive touching of the present moment. 
It takes that willingness to be open, to get close to ourself, to become familiar with ourself. It seems amazing, really, that we have to learn how to do that. That we have to learn, somehow we have to, we have to practice getting in touch with ourselves, being familiar with this body and mind, which is all that we are. But conditions of our society and our families and our life in general have conspired to cut us off from ourselves, from this most intimate experience of our body, our mind, our emotions. Our practice here is to come home, to come back home, to learn how to live in this body, to learn how to be at ease with our heart and our minds. One helpful approach or one helpful way of encouraging and nurturing this intimacy is to ask yourself in your most childlike, naive, innocent, vulnerable way, what is this experience? What am I knowing right now? What do I feel? Without any expectation, without any demand that your experience conform to your hopes, wishes, plans, but just very innocently, just ask yourself in this moment, what am I experiencing? Our conditioning, again, is very strongly tilted towards asking the question, why? Why does things have to be this way? Why does it work out that way? How does it work? But the question that we ask in this practice is the question, what? What is this experience in this moment? What is the question that most neutrally supports this cultivation of intimate self-knowledge without any agenda? Albert Einstein was one of those rare beings that had this fantastic ability to see the most ordinary things in a new and fresh way. And we recognize him as being quite unique and distinctive in his, uh, the scope and the range and the, the depth of his mind. But he had this to say of himself. I think that people generally overestimate me. But I don't consider myself superior or different from any other person. I am not more gifted than anybody else. I am just more curious and maybe more patient. What could we learn about ourself if we were a little more curious and a little more patient? Able to see 
without any agenda, without any demand that our life perform for us. After all, we have never taken this breath before. We've never taken this step before. Can we be that curious? Can we be that patient? Can we withstand the boredom, the mundaneness, the possibility of disappointment? It helps tremendously to slow down, to just cut your speed in half. The pace of our life today is so fast, mentally and physically, that we don't have time to recognize what our senses are registering. And so this video recorder that we are is just a blur, and we can't bring it into focus. I remember reading some time ago, and I don't have a clear reference for it, one of those early naturalists back in the 19th century saying, uh, kind of uh, exclaiming, how could anybody ride a horse from one place to another? They would go so fast they'd miss so much. Yogi came to an interview recently, not here on this retreat, but another retreat, and she was just getting into a practice, and she said, when I'm doing my walking practice, I feel like I'm stalking myself. That's exactly what practice is. We're stalking ourselves, trying to get close enough to ourself to feel to really be in touch with this life. It's helpful when we ask the question, what is this? To let ourselves be with the experience until we know clearly what it is. Not just to dismiss it, pass it off as, as just something going by, but allow ourselves to really open to it fully, take it in and recognize it, and we'll know if we have succeeded in that by having a clear understanding of that experience, and then we can note it, we can label it. If it's going by too diffusely or too quickly in these initial days of practice to recognize it, then we need to settle down, we need to slow down, we need to open up a little bit more, come into a greater contact with our experience. Walt Whitman. He makes a note of just how precious this quality of awareness is. He said, or he wrote, Beginning my studies, the first step pleased me so much 
the mere fact of consciousness, these forms, the power of motion, the least insect or animal, the senses, eyesight, love. The first step, I say, awed me so much and pleased me so much, I have hardly gone or wished to have gone any further. But stop and loiter all the time and sing it in ecstatic form. This is the great miracle of our life, that we can be aware of it. We can be present for this fantastic journey, this, this dramatic unfolding of moment after moment of this thing that we are. Mindfulness has this ability to do that, to remember to be present. It's mindfulness that brings us into this recognition of presence of mind. So, mindfulness is present time knowing. You can't be mindful of the past, in the past. You can't be mindful of the future. You can be mindful in the present. You can be mindful of thoughts of the past, mindful in the present of thoughts of the future. But it only happens in the present moment. So how much of our life do we go through living it out, acting it out, uh, fulfilling our agenda, and miss this essential fact that we are here now. This is the quality of mind that we are coming back to again and again and again, and just trying to recognize in the next breath, the next step, the next thought. It is so common, it is so ordinary, it is so ubiquitous, it is here every moment, and yet, fantastically, we miss it. But it's mindfulness, it's those moments of direct contact that brings the flavor of our life to us, really enlivens our life. Kala Rinpoche, a Tibetan meditation master, said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things, but there is a reality and we are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. He starts by saying, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. I'm sure by now on this retreat, you have discovered, even in these first few days, how much of our life is spent in a dream. Occasionally we wake up from the dream and we recognize, we recognize oh, here I am. And immediately we fall back into the dream for minutes, hours, sometimes whole days seem to go by, 
and we're just living in this dreamlike swirl of the past and the future, images just kind of carrying us along. Ask yourself, what makes the dream? What spins the thread of this little cocoon that we climb in and fall asleep in? It is as if we live enchanted by our internal dialogue. We carry on this conversation with ourselves. Here I am, a yogi on retreat. Oh, I'm getting up now. It's early. Mm, I'm really tired. I don't know if I want to get up now. How long till breakfast? Well, I guess I'll go sit. There's the bell. Okay, here I am. I'm coming in sitting. Well, should I put my legs like this? Oh, it was painful that time. Maybe I'll sit like that. Okay. And we go on like this all day. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Anybody find themselves talking to themselves today? So our words are spinning this little enchanted cocoon that we crawl in and live inside. We're all yogis. We explain the way we are, how we happen to get here, what we're doing, what we hope to get out of it. We even explain how we're doing on retreat. Don't we all have some sense of how we did today? <laughs> and you know what? We probably believe it. <laughs> Maybe your dream is a nightmare. It sometimes is. But nevertheless, it is a cocoon spun by this internal dialogue that apparently never ends. So we're held under the spell. We're enchanted. We're entranced as if we were bewitched by these thoughts these words that go through our mind. To awaken from this inner dream, from this inner illusion, to come out from this illusion, to drop into the present moment, to become disenchanted, that's our practice. But disenchantment implies a sense of loss, disappointment. And it always is accompanied by a feeling of unpleasantness. You know, being disenchanted, disillusioned with someone, something. It's kind of unpleasant. And so too, as we begin to wake up from our dream, when we begin to come out from this illusion, when we begin to get disillusioned with our dream, what do we discover? It's unpleasant. It's difficult to come out of the dream. It's difficult to come out of our illusion, to come out of our cocoon. And it's difficult because it's so painful. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda to stop the internal dialogue. Sansanim, a 
Korean Zen master in Providence teaches his students to tap thinking mind. What we're doing here in being mindful is the same thing. Stopping the internal dialogue, cut thinking mind, come out of the dream. Henry David Thoreau, not usually remembered as a great meditation master, had this to say, by a conscious effort of the mind, we can stand aloof from all things. And all things go by us in a torrent And however intense my experience, I am conscious of the presence of a part of me which is spectator, sharing no experience but taking note of it, and that is no more I than it is you. We all know what he's talking about. That ability to step back from the internal dialogue to step back from the flow of experience that is weaving the web, spinning the threads of the cocoon, and just to see it go by as this uh, empty phenomena that it really is, and realize it really has nothing to do with us. When we realize that, that this stream of events that spins this cocoon really has nothing to do with us. It's not personal to us. What we get a glimpse of is the tremendous freedom that's ours for the asking. And that freedom is awesome. one of the things that this mindfulness exposes as we begin to poke holes in this cocoon, as we begin to unwind the threads of this cocoon, is just how painful our lives are. Pain in the body. I know you've all experienced some pain in the body today. Pain in the heart. Disappointment, frustration, loneliness, anxiety, fear anger, unfulfilled desires. This is pain in the heart. Our careful attention exposes this pain. Emily Dickinson, also not known as a great meditation master, said, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers it with trance as if in a dream. If we can't handle the pain, we live in a dream. If we can't open to the pain, we live in a trance. So your discovery of pain in the body today, of pain in your heart today, is good. It's the key to freedom. It cuts through the dream, the trance, and it exposes the illusions that we live under. Our task is not getting caught and identified with the pain. Now, maturity of mindfulness and the development of insight 
as you all now know, is not a linear process. It is very circular, circuitous. It doesn't seem to go from here to anywhere. It just goes around. And progress is not measured by how many years you've been practicing, or how many retreats you've done, or how long those retreats have been, or which teachers you've practiced with, or how long you can sit still. Insight is all about opening to pain and letting go of it, not getting identified with it. As we open to pain, we open to freedom. Vipassana is the practice of freedom. But let's be honest, none of us like to experience pain. Not physical pain, not emotional pain, not mental pain, not psychic pain. None of us like to feel pain. So what happens when pain arises in our life? as it inevitably will at times. How do we usually and habitually respond? One way, we get tired. I can't deal with it. Too sleepy. So in the dullness of our mind, sleepiness, the pain goes away. How much pain do you feel when you're asleep? Not much. It's a way of avoiding, a way of escaping from the pain of our life. Another trick of the mind when we feel pain is to get angry. Blame somebody for this pain that we feel. Blame your partner. Blame your parents. Blame your kids. Blame the government. Blame anybody so that you don't have to feel the pain. When we get caught in anger, spun out by it, we fall into an angry dream. The internal dialogue of anger keeps us numb to the pain. Or sometimes when pain arises, we may say, geez, I wish I hadn't come to this retreat. I wish I'd taken my week's holiday and gone to the beach instead. I'm sure it'd be more fun there. And we spin out this pleasant scenario somewhere else. I know some of you have had that thought today, or thoughts similar to it. It's so familiar. Can't stand the present? Dream about the future. Galway Canal, one of my favorite contemporary poets, writes, that we imagine paradise elsewhere, or thoughts of paradise elsewhere, quickly fills every empty, hollow, painful spot in us. Sometimes, though, our skill at internal dialoguing is so slick and so tricky that we say to ourselves, hmm, pain. I must be doing something wrong. 
Maybe I don't have the right posture. Maybe I'm not doing this practice right. If I have this pain, maybe I better go home. Maybe I can never do this practice anyway. Maybe it's just too difficult for me. Maybe I'm just too old to begin practice like this. Maybe I'm too young. Maybe I've done too many drugs. Maybe I haven't done enough. <laughs> Whatever the condition. You know. These thoughts, they come, don't they? Yeah. All we got to do is believe one, and we've got our ticket out of here. <laughs> when pain conditions doubt to arise, the mind doesn't see things clearly. Another favorite companion of these four, sleepiness, anger, wanting something else, you know, paradise elsewhere, or doubt, the fifth great escape from pain is restlessness. Instead of feeling the pain, we wander around, physically, often, here and there, or mentally, if we can't wander physically. And the mind just goes here and there, touching on all kinds of experiences to avoid the pain of the present moment. We wander restlessly, anxiously trying to get away from it without even knowing that we're running away from pain. So these five responses to pain, these five great escapes, they're well known in meditation practice as the five hindrances because they hinder the development of mindfulness, the opening of insight, the experience of freedom. Now, believe me, the pain doesn't have to be very loud. Consider boredom. Boredom, a subtle manifestation of sloth, laziness. How painful is boredom? It's excruciating. We'll do anything not to feel bored. In fact, it's the source of most of our uh, desires. How many of us can just sit at home on Friday night when everybody else is going out and having fun? Bored. It's painful, isn't it? Or to sit here, you know, achieve some kind of balance in your mind, in your body, a little bit of mindfulness, you know, same old thing happening, breathing in, breathing out, a few wandering minds. This is boring. <laughs> and so what do we do? We jack it up. Look for something a little more intense. Talk to the teacher. Maybe we're doing something wrong. You know, walk a little faster. Sit a little straighter. Do something, anything except experience this boredom. everything that every teacher has ever said about these hindrances, and they'll still arise. <laughs> because it's not your fault. 
These hindrances are deeply conditioned habits. Extraordinarily deeply conditioned habits. Unbelievably deeply conditioned habits. And in spite of our best intentions in this moment to not succumb to them, they are unbelievably strong. But our task is to persevere with our mindfulness in the face of them. We have to stop the chatter. We have to stop that internal dialogue and ask ourselves, what is going on? This is the first step, to recognize what is going on with any of these obstacles, any of these strong mental states. They are so strong, so habitual, that we don't even see them. I'm sure you've had this experience. You come in, you sit down, you get into the right posture, you take a breath, and you start bobbing and nodding. You know, especially that sitting right after lunch. And you're just kind of swaying and bobbing and nodding. And you're trying to be present with the breath. You know, you're, you're doing what they said. You know, pay attention to the breath. And that can go on for 20, 30, 45 minutes or more. And never once pull out of that experience and recognize that sleepiness or dullness is present. How many of us have done that and never said to ourselves, aha, I'm sleepy, or dullness is here, or something like that. Instead, we just kind of, really, we just wallow in it. We think we're being mindful of it, but we never recognize it. When sleepiness arises and appears in the mind, that is the place we establish mindfulness. But first we have to recognize it. Pulling out of our experience and asking this question, just as Henry David Thoreau said, just stand a little bit aloof from your experience, turn around and ask yourself, what is it that I'm noticing? And you can do that with sleepiness as well as every one of these difficult mental states. Because when we do, we immediately write, oh, this is, I'm really dull, I'm really sleepy, I'm really exhausted, or whatever. And then we put a label on it. We just say, that's it. We got it. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to go away. We have to not have any agenda in that recognition. I and many others have had this experience where in some sitting totally uh, awash in dullness and sleepiness, just barely able to stay awake, you know, with toothpicks holding open your eyes and just, you know, breathing deep and just struggling to stay awake and you're just noting sleepiness and dullness and you're feeling it and feeling it and noting and noting and noting and noting and noting and noting and, noting and, noting and 
in one note, completely gone. And you just settle back in the and you're totally alert, without any effort. And that sleepiness is completely gone. It doesn't go gradually. It's fully on, and then it's fully off. It happens. Mindfulness arises, sleepiness arises due to its own conditions. And when those conditions cease, sleepiness ceases with it. Our task is to be there for it. To stay present for as long as those conditions last. And when they go, we'll notice it. That's our job. That's our task as, as yogis. We're not trying to get rid of it. We're not trying to understand it. We're not trying to justify it. We're certainly not going to act it out. We just have to be there for it. Become intimately familiar with our life. But sleepiness itself is so painful. To stay awake in the face of sleepiness is painful. And for the most part, if we're not a yogi, we won't do it. We'll just take a nap. To name a demon begins to take away its power. Sometimes just the simple act of saying this is sleepiness, or this is sloth, or this is torpor, immediately gives us some different perspective on it where we're not lost in it. And we just step back, and it's there, and mindfulness is here, and the suffering isn't happening. So this is the first step, recognizing. The second step is to exercise restraint. Because the habits are so deep and automatic, we habitually act them out. When we get sleepy, we take a nap. When we get restless, we wander. We begin to fidget. Our habitual tendency is to withdraw from pain, physical, emotional, psychic pain. And we withdraw into thoughts and feelings of anger, fear, hostility, criticism, frustration, disappointment, despair, depression, boredom, self-judgment. These are all forms of withdrawing from the experience, the unpleasant experience, I might add. When we become enchanted and blinded by these internal dialogues, then we are caught up in acting out our blind aversion. Now, with this blindness of aversion, we have no fear of doing or saying anything. Our conscience leaves us. And we just say and do whatever we want, influenced by aversion. But once we recognize aversion being present, exercise some restraint, then we don't act it out. We have to deal with the pain of it. Now, the format of a retreat like this is designed to support not acting out. 
there's a regular schedule of sitting and walking from, what, 6 in the morning till about 10 at night. <coughs> Moving slow, not communicating, not reading, not writing, not gazing around here, here and there. Just being mindful. Just the whole, the whole format of retreat is designed to support mindfulness. If you find yourself acting outside of the format of a retreat in any way, we won't shame you, we won't humiliate you, we won't even question you. But you should have the courage to ask yourself, which of these great escapes are you acting under the influence of? And when you do, recognize the mental state, and you exercise a little restraint, then you can begin to feel your way back into your experience. And when you do, the mind's energy stays in the present moment. We've all had the experience, over the course of a retreat, the intensity builds up. What's happening? The mind's energy is staying in the present moment. We're not drifting off into the future. We're not wandering and wallowing back in the past. We're staying in the present. And the present may be thoughts of the future and the past, but we're present with them now. So all the energy of the mind stays in the present moment, and it gets intense. Restraint from acting out builds up this tremendous energy in the mind. And it takes this tremendous energy to deal with the pain. To an observer, we might look like slow morons. <laughs> but in fact, our inner life is vibrantly alive for most of us. So we recognize these mental states. We exercise some restraint, not acting them out. The third step in dealing with these difficult mental states is to reframe our understanding of them. So we recognize them, we exercise some restraint, and the third step is to reframe our understanding of them. Now, when I say reframe, what I mean is to cultivate the understanding that we don't have to get rid of them. We don't have to get rid of these mental states, unpleasant as they are. We don't even have to judge ourselves for them. We don't have to judge our practice by them. All we have to do is understand that these experiences, too, are the very place for establishing mindful awareness. Most of us will have this belief that if we're sleepy, we can't be mindful. If we're restless, we can't be mindful. If we're caught in desire or aversion or, or whatever, that we've got to wait till it's over before we can practice, before we can get on with practice. 
That's not true. We need to reframe our understanding of these difficult mental states. They are the very place for establishing mindfulness. It's difficult, though, because it's so painful. Every one of them is an extraordinarily painful experience. And so we have to be willing to feel pain. When doubt arises in the mind, it is maybe the most paralyzing of these difficult mental states. Because when doubt arises, our commitment to being here wavers. Our investment in energy takes a hit. We become ambivalent about our aspirations, and we begin to doubt that we can even do it. But if we turn around and look at, recognize the experience of doubt, restrain ourselves from acting it out, and acting it out is wallowing in thoughts of trying to figure it out. You can't figure out doubt. You can't think your way to confidence in this practice. It's not possible. The only way to overcome doubt is to keep practicing. Keep noticing. Keep noting and recognizing and being aware of this experience of doubt. No amount of affirmation is going to do it. Stonehouse, a 14th century Chinese hermit monk, wrote, You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wears through. It's not true that thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine their minds are hard. recognize, we exercise some restraint, we reframe our understanding, then as we pay attention, mindfulness will reveal the unique flavor of each of these conditions. Now restlessness is different than sleepiness. Pressure is different than pain. Pain feels different than pleasure. And pleasure feels different than heat. Heat feels different than cold, and so on. Every experience has its own unique flavor. Every physical sensation has its own unique flavor. Every mental state has its own unique flavor. Every thought has its own unique flavor. Mindfulness reveals them. Then we discover what's really going on by actually touching the moment they appear. And when we know the unique flavor of anything, any moment, no one can take away that knowledge. No one can raise a doubt in our mind what that experience is. That's how confidence truly develops with practice.
because we know for ourselves, because we've experienced it clearly, and we've recognized it. Take restlessness. Restlessness is maybe the greatest challenge to our misunderstanding of meditation practice. Somehow, somewhere, we get this belief that if I meditate, I'm going to chill out, cool down, stress-free, calm, peaceful living. (laughs) Isn't that why we're here? So when restlessness appears, we are firmly convinced that we're not doing it right. Because restlessness is not that calm, peaceful, tranquil, easy presence of mind, bliss, you know. But if we exercise some restraint, we recognize, exercise some restraint, not pace around wildly, reframe our understanding that, indeed, restlessness too is an experience for developing mindfulness. Then we open up to the feeling of restlessness. Does anybody know how painful restlessness really is? It's not sharp pain. It's not sharp like knee pain. It doesn't feel like a meat hook in the back. It's not like a headache. It's more like creepy crawly skin or something. You want to jump out of your skin. It's so unpleasant. Not even sharp. It's just really unpleasant. But our task, because restlessness is is an excess of energy, is to cultivate tranquility. Cultivate stillness, really. You feeling restless? Best thing to do is stand still. Stand absolutely still and feel it. It'll drive you crazy. (laughs) But you'll know what restlessness is. You'll know what the pain of restlessness is hiding. It's amazing how skillful and adaptable mindfulness can be. It can be with anything. We can be mindfully aware of anything. Everything. There isn't anything that ever happens that we can't be mindfully aware of. But we have to be willing to try. And that's our whole, the whole purpose of Kamala and I sitting up front here is to encourage you to try. Everything we say, interviews, Dharma talks, is just encouraging, enticing, exhorting, tricking, whatever it is, to try to get you to just sit there and try to be present with what's happening. It's not easy. I'm not, we're not going to pretend that it's easy. It's not. But patient mindfulness will reveal what's going on. So we recognize what's appearing. We don't act on it by exercising some restraint. We reframe our understanding to include that this too is a place for establishing mindfulness. Mindfulness reveals its unique characteristics. 
And as we touch this moment by connecting with it intimately, deeply, sustaining our attention on it, we realize its universal characteristics. Recognize, restrain, reframe, reveal, realize. The realization of universal characteristics sounds pretty dramatic, but in actuality, it's rather ordinary. But such realizations is really profound and has far-reaching implications. So, what are the universal characteristics of all experience? First, everything that we've ever experienced is transient, momentary, fleeting, impermanent. It doesn't last very long. This is the characteristic of Anicca. Secondly, we discover that they're all either unpleasant, unstable, unsatisfying, and in the very least, they don't provide us with any security. This is dukkha characteristic. And thirdly, we discover that these experiences, we don't make them happen, we can't make them not happen, they come due to their own conditions, they go when those conditions cease to exist, they're ephemeral, they're insubstantial, they're out of our control, and they have no inherent self-existence. This is the anatta characteristic. We realize these characteristics in each and every moment that we're mindful. It happens with the planning mind, the wandering mind, the forgetful mind, the future mind, the past mind, the emotional mind, the bored mind, they're all alike in this sense. They're impermanent, they're unsatisfying, and they're out of our control. During my recent six weeks of practice at home, I was besieged by planning mind. Planning all the good Dharma talks I was going to give this retreat, in fact, or other Dharma activities worthy to do, but requiring a lot of planning. (laughs) (laughs) Then I came across this quote in a book I was reading for inspiration at lunchtime about this Tibetan yogi, Shabka, who was a fantastic practitioner and renunciate. He said, snow lions don't freeze in snow mountains, eagles don't fall out of the sky, fish don't drown in water, and practitioners don't die of hunger. So cast away this life's concerns and give up plans for the future. So this encouraged me to let go a little bit (laughs) and just feel the unpleasantness of wanting, of planning, of imagining some other future more satisfying than this. But even though I was aware that wanting was happening, desire was happening, planning was happening, I couldn't make it stop. Sometimes I would just have to ride the waves of excitement, adrenaline rushing, thrilling, imagining this wonderful future that's going to happen as soon as I get my plans fulfilled. (laughs) And sometimes that energy of desire would last the better part of a day. 
But during that period of time, my new mantra became, every new project is another 100,000 lifetimes. <laughs> it helped endure. And it takes tremendous endurance to outlast desire. But it can be done. That's our task. That's our challenge. To not buy into this fantasy. To not allow this dreamlike cocoon to envelop us. But to just ruthlessly stay present. See things as they are feel that pain of unfilled desire and longing. You know, we don't have to satisfy our desires. We can outlast them. And then you see that desire itself is impermanent. It's definitely unpleasant. And it has a life of its own, insubstantial as it is. A really interesting thing happens. You outlast desire. And the next day when the desire is not there, you take a look at that plan or that person or that project and you think, my goodness, what was I thinking? (laughs) How could I have been so caught up in that? And then you realize just how blind we become when desire fills the mind. So when the mind is clouded by desire and we're focusing only on the pleasant aspect of whatever we're seeing, we are so blind. Our task, being yogis, wanting to be free, is to establish our mindfulness not on the object of our desire, that person, that plan, that dharma talk I'm going to write, but to focus our attention on the feeling of desire itself. The feeling of desire is always the same. The objects of desire are endless. And because we have been chasing the changing objects of our desire, we have wandered in samsara forever. The only way to freedom is to turn around, look at the desire itself, and let go. Outlast it. Don't satisfy it. The freedom is tremendous. Patiently waiting for desire to dissolve has saved me at least a hundred thousand lifetimes. That's freedom. Mindfulness of ordinary experience reveals these deep and profound liberating truths of anicca, impermanence, Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, in
substantiality. These difficult mental states that I've been speaking about are bound to arise. Don't judge yourself. Don't judge your practice by their arising. But recognize that you can do something about it. You recognize them, exercise some restraint, reframe your understanding, let mindfulness reveal their unique characteristic, and you will realize these liberating universal truths. Sri Nizargadatta, a holy man in India some years ago, said, all you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. And all I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them for you are beyond both. As you begin to connect more continuously with these present moment experiences, these great escapes from the pains of our life, the mind becomes pure. And it's the ability of the mind to do its work to just be present, to know things as they are, that grows. Huang Po, Chinese Zen master of the ninth century, said, This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe, filling emptiness, one with emptiness. It is without time or space, and it has no passions, no actions, no ignorance, and no knowledge. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality. It is a jewel beyond all price. As we become familiar with these great escapes and we open to the pain of our life and we let go, we begin to own this jewel beyond all price. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.